stilettos. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Scarlet True Crime Podcast. So a funny story to get us started. I was visiting with some friends last night and friends that I've known almost my entire life. And one of my friends has a new baby. And you actually might remember I went to uh, this friend's baby shower earlier this year. And so I was sitting at this friend's kitchen table and I was telling her that actually telling the two of them, I have started this new true crime murder podcast with my boss. And one of my friends says, how does someone who works where you do, we're not going to name where we work, will say with girly type things. <laughs> get it, get it into talking about true crime. To which I instantly replied, "You guys have known me almost my entire life. What part of me screams girly dolls princesses to you?" They all laughed, and it was so such an outrageous of an idea. The seven month old toddler even started to laugh. <laughs> It takes all perspectives. Uh, I uh, I agree. But I think that they're, um, you know, you can apply just about anything to anything else you're doing in the scheme of entertainment. So I still think that this is very much from the entertainment perspective, right up our alley. It totally is. And uh, Mariah LaFond, in your adorable seven months of life and your only two times of knowing me, I'm so glad you know me so well. You already know that about me. <laughs> Alrighty, let's dive into our, our topic. I am interested in this case for so many reasons. And uh, one of them what, is... What case is it, Sonia? It is the case of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bathory. I'm sorry, you want to try that one more time? Elizabeth Bathory. Elizabeth Bathory. So there are a couple ways to say her name. I will say right now, I am not an expert in speaking Hungarian. I don't actually know any <laughs> Hungarian whatsoever. Um, so we're going to try to stay um, as close to the proper saying, the proper uh, pronunciation of the names. Yes, we'll try very hard to be as accurate as possible, but can't promise anything. And apologies in advance. I feel like we do this every week. Apologies in advance to... The 500-year-old Hungarians whose names we're about to mispronounce. Yes. Sorry. We want to make sure we're starting every episode these days with a summary for you guys. We don't want to dive in just yet because we want to make sure, number one, you understand so that you can make the decision on whether you want to continue to listen to this particular episode. I will, uh, we always have a disclaimer, you know, this is for adults, this is entertainment, this is our opinion, based on a lot of information out there available to the public in a variety of ways. So at the end, we'll wrap up our episode with our thanks to all the different sources that we used. There's a lot of information out there. You know, this is a very popular case because it was so long ago. It's also a popular case because Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bathory is known as the most prolific female serial killer of all time and uh, rightfully noted in the Guinness Book of World Records. There's definitely some question marks about how accurate her prolificness is? Is that the right word? Am I using that proper, properly? Yeah. I mean, Guinness doesn't mess around. So, for all intents and purposes, it's generally well. accepted. She was pretty nasty, and as one of the articles I read said, as Sonya just said, all the trigger warnings. It's going to get gross. Yeah. It's going to get violent. Yeah, so, definitely. Heads well, up. We'll provide you a little context, because I have my own opinions about Elizabeth. Essentially, Elizabeth... And again, the most female prolific serial killer. 
there's a lot of discussion about how many victims she actually had. It goes from 35 to 650, depending upon who you ask. Now, there were a lot of witnesses, air quotes, that were um, testified against her. But remember, in the context of the time, anybody who was testifying or being questioned by uh, the police or the royalty or whatever it was that was doing the the priest, honestly, you know, the religious sect seemed to have a very big interest in what she was doing as well. And all of this stems back to the politics and what they had to gain from it. Because, of course, there's some monetary gain to overcoming or conquering the most powerful woman in the country. And a person who was richer than the king, and he owed her money. So there's there's a lot going on here. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it was said that she had participated in the deaths of almost or more than 650 uh, young girls. They keep calling these young girls young virgins. I don't know how anybody knows that. Is there a test for that? I'm not sure. But uh, it makes it sound more dramatic when she's essentially harvesting young virgins and, and taking having her way with them in a variety of ways. Now, Elizabeth... Uh, did not do all of these or commit all these crimes alone. And at the time, I have to say, they weren't actually considered crimes. Um, this was the, the norm. And you had full you had full control over your, your servants and the, and the people who worked in the country. And that country was hers. So she was... She was essentially at the time that these this is all happening. She was ruling over almost seventeen castles and thousands and thousands of acres. So she technically owned them, at least in her perspective. So let's start at the beginning with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, and let's talk a little bit about when she was born, her family, how she came to meet her husband, and then how we how we started throughout this this crime. So Elizabeth was born to Baron. George VI Bathory. Uh, He was the brother of Andrew Bonaventura, who was voivode. We just looked that word up, which apparently means (laughs) governor uh, general of Transylvania. Uh, And her mother was a baroness, Anna Bathory, uh, daughter of uh, Bathory of Somleo, another voivode of Transylvania. So while not brother and sister, a direct relationship, I think they were ultimately cousins. So very close in relation were her parents. And when she was born, she developed early signs of what would now be considered epilepsy. And she had multiple seizures at a young age, which at this day and age is known as a direct result of incest and the pairing of familial genes. So that clearly did a number on her mind early on in a young age. And that may have played a role in what became her violent tendencies later on in life. But in addition to her anatomical difficulties or biological difficulties that she dealt with, she was also exposed to some very graphic and violent experiences at the hands of her father. Which which I have to say were normal at the time. But very interesting topic. Um, you know, obviously this case started, I, I feel like, at the birth of Elizabeth. E-R-Z-S-E-B-E-T is the official um, spelling, but we are going to call her, I will probably go back between Elizabeth and Elizabeth. Um, she was born in 1560, and she was born born of royal descent um, for, a, for a very strong and wealthy lineage. So she was born August 7th in 1560, and she was born in the kingdom of Hungary. 
She was born into high society. She came from a long lineage that had about 500 years of royalty. Her uncle was the king of Poland and prince of uh, Transylvania, which is where this takes place, which I think is fantastic because I wasn't ever even really sure if Transylvania was a real place. (laughs) Which it was. I don't think it's around anymore, but I love that it was real. Uh, But she was born into privilege, to say the least. This was Hungary. And Hungary now um, is what we're considering the king of Hungary is now known as Hungary, Slovakia and Romania. So a very large portion of of Central Europe. Um, And it was very common during these times. I think the Turks and the Hungarians were fighting over land and everyone was at war. And it was a very brutal war. These were also around the times of Vlad the Impaler, which we're familiar with, who was from Wallachia, (laughs) my God, which is a part of Romania. So a lot of people suggest that Elizabeth Bathory was one of the influences for the Dracula or Count Dracula, that story, because honestly, she'd be a lot closer to what that Count Dracula character did or or was was portrayed as much closer than Vlad the Impaler, who was just really popular for impaling people during war and and torturing them. But this was a consistent theme across all of the wartime was this, this torture tactic and how it was normal. And again, back to servants, you know, you can do anything you want with them. They are, they are at your will. They're your property. Absolutely. And that's why really at the end of the day, it was really hard for them to, for a very long time, do anything about Elizabeth's exploits, we'll say, because she was royalty, because she owned practically everything more than the king. He owed her money. And because she was so far removed from any of this, Elizabeth's personality, even from a young age, I think is really interesting because she was known as a bit of a tomboy. She was not your typical young woman. She was not, you know, wafy and sort of, you know, submissive in the way that you would expect or uh, for the times. She was actually um, had a very strong personality and she frequently spoke out about things that she believed in. Um, she was a Calvinist Protestant, so she was known to be fairly religious. She had a lot of communication with the church. She was very supportive of the church. Um, you know, it was she participated in the way that really gave this impression that she was a really good person. Uh, People had high regard for her and she was respectful most of the time. It's also important to understand at this time, Protestantism, Lutheranism was still a relatively new idea. This wasn't that long after Martin Luther. So Catholicism was still running rampant throughout Europe and was the primary Christian religion of the land. So being a Calvinist Protestant at the time was not looked highly upon if you were outside of that particular sect, particularly for someone who was highly educated, very wealthy, and came from a position of power, it wasn't considered a great spot by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was beholden to her because of her wealth in that area. So I think the king was Catholic, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. The king of Hungary was Catholic. So they were very close in the way that they worked together, and she was a bit of an outsider. So going back a bit, 
you know, we talked a little bit about how Elizabeth upbringing included um, some some modeling around torture and the way that people were treated and human rights and or the lack of human rights and the things that she witnessed. There are a couple of things that are noted that she witnessed um, that may have started her on her path towards um, her path towards desensitization. Desensitization is what I like to call it, because starting to model these characteristics after her father and her mother and, and understanding what was normal at the time. It was said that one time there was a thief who stole something from her father. As his punishment, they sewed him up in a horse and left him to die. Inside the belly of the horse, as this was happening, Elizabeth actually started laughing and enjoyed watching the torture. Well, she was six years old, I think, at the time. So I'm not sure if she enjoyed it, but I think the spectacle, um, that's where it's really interesting. I'm not sure... Did she enjoy it because she liked to see somebody tortured or was, or was it just a spectacle? Because if you think at the time, what she considered normal was this spectacle and this mistreatment of people at all times. Possibly, but regardless of whether she enjoyed it or not, it, it's a sick, violent act mm-hmm. that stuck with her, but didn't stick with her in the way that you might expect, in which she went on to reflect on it as a traumatic life event. It almost comes back as a life-shifting event. And maybe set the stage for what she would become. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, there were other other family members that Elizabeth grew up with that may have had some um, bearing on her future. Uh, she was very close with her aunt, who, as some would refer to as a witch or a practicing witchcraft, which was interesting. She was also occasionally known as a lesbian, and it was reported <laughs> by some of these folks who who were interviewed by the priest and um, when they were trying to get information against Elizabeth that uh, her aunt and Elizabeth had actually had a, uh, a lesbian relationship. So incest not only brought her into this world, but it was part of her regular life. It was not, it wasn't a taboo situation. Copulating within your family was not a negative thing. It wasn't looked down upon. No, not at all. Because if you were royal and you had royal blood, and this goes across all of royalty, that you wanted to keep that blood in, you know, that bloodline clean. And that was the way that they did it. They didn't really understand the repercussions. I mean, remember at the time, medicine was not very advanced. So a lot of what they were, uh, their understanding of what, what happened. I mean, think about so far down the road where we finally figured out bacteria and sanitation. And I mean, so many things. This is far, 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 far before that. After Elizabeth's death, she became known as the Blood Countess, and her dalliances in blood started from a very young age as well. As we mentioned, she had a history of epilepsy, and to Sonia's point about the lack of knowledge of modern medicine, a treatment for epilepsy at that time was by taking the blood of a non-epileptic and smearing it on the lips of a person who was having seizures. Hmm, interesting. I wonder if there's any basis in that now? Oh, I'm sure there's probably not. I mean, there's nothing... We know there's nothing there. If anything, we know that swapping blood like that is never a good idea, and if anything, is opens people up to diseases as opposed to treatment, as it was considered at the time. Sure. And maybe that's why they refer to these 
the young girls the vir- as virgins because there was probably some purity associated with that that they were looking for. Oh, that's actually a really good point because it was important to her that she had virgin blood. And so if it was that was something that she was looking for inexperienced, untainted blood for treatment of her ailments and other issues that she had later on in life or perceived issues that she had later on in life. It's actually a good idea. I hadn't thought about that, that maybe that's where that all came from, because that was the only pure form of treatment she could think of or come across. Well, let's step back a little, because what we do also know in Elizabeth's sort of relationship with her aunt and her aunts and of use of witchcraft what what we refer as to as witchcraft may be different than what they referred to back then because there wasn't a lot of medical technology you know witchcraft was anything outside of the norm which meant that herbology and any other kind of medical um studies per se was probably looked down upon i mean i think that the religious sect thought that everything was ruled by god and god had the power and god made the decisions about whether people lived or died and what actually happened to them. If you look at it that, from that perspective, if it's in God's hands, then none of the medical portion of this actually comes into effect. But I think Elizabeth, based on her relationship with her aunt and them spending a lot of time together, was very interested in witchcraft, i.e. herbology. You're probably right about that, but there is part of me that really likes the idea that she was into witchcraft and it probably was nothing. But in the lore of it all, I kind of enjoy that thought. So Elizabeth and her her future husband, um, Ferenc Nadazi. Is that right? Um, we're going to say yes. Mm, yeah. For our purposes, we'll call him Nadazdi. But he was a big influence over her. And they actually were betrothed when she was 11 years old and he was 16. What was common back in the day was for the betrothed, the young young girl, usually of nobility and royalty, um, would actually move in with her future husband so that she could be acclimated to the carryings on of the castle or whatever needed to happen in the household because that would she would be expected to carry that on so she actually went into the the custody we'll say of her future mother-in-law where she was taught all those things so that she could carry on that line and, and handle those estates and at the time what we would consider now the very young age of 15 was off battling the ottoman empire which of course today is modern-day Turkey, but he rose highly into the Hungarian military. So he was became a high general. At the age of 15, he was already enlisted and making a mark for himself. So she was largely left to his family to grow and become adapt into their way of life. As he was off at war, she became pregnant at the age of 13 before she got married. Now, there's some speculation as to how she became pregnant. Was it out of rape? Was it out of a relationship that she had? Uh, What we do know is that the child was born from a father who was not a nobleman, who was really considered of lower class, possibly a peasant. He was quickly taken out of the picture and the child was handed off to uh, a local woman that was trusted by the Bathory family. And the local woman raised the child more or less as her own to keep her out of the noble life of the Bathory's. 
And one thing I will mention, because I thought it was really interesting, was that Number one, when Ferrance's men found this person who actually got Elizabeth pregnant with this child, not only did they torture him, they castrated him, and they, if I'm not mistaken, they pulled him apart and the dogs ate him, which seemed to be a really popular way to kill people at that time. And I, I mean, hey, dogs clean up messes, so I get it. The other thing I thought was really interesting about this is that the child was taken to Wallachia. That is where Vlad the Impaler was from. <laughs> So Elizabeth, as, as Brittany said, was engaged to France at 10 years old. They were married when she was 15 and he was 19 at the palace of uh, Verano in Hungary. <laughs> this was the social event of the century in Hungary. 4,500 guests attended. I can't even imagine that many people attending a wedding. That is insanely, that's a ton of people. This was a political, socially arranged marriage. So they both brought with them a lot of respect and nobility. But they really came out to support this couple. Well, this was essentially all of the people within the area that they, you know, ruled. Um, and Elizabeth moved into the Nadazdi castle and she spent a lot of her time there. And her husband actually went, Ferrand, went and studied in Vienna for a number of years. He studied not only the, um, the sciences and, and all of the, what would we call them, the English, the poetry, all of the, the fancy arts. That, Literature, liberal art, what we call liberal arts today. Yeah, which everybody found pretty much useless and then ultimately shifted <laughs> him towards um, training as a soldier. So in this relationship, that means because Elizabeth spoke multiple languages, she spoke Latin, German, Hungarian, and Greek. She was actually the most well-versed of them. I think he was sort of, in my opinion, he kind of came across as a bit of a heathen. She was much higher in the social standing as well as she was highly educated, more educated even for a noble woman at the time. So she really, she looked at herself and was looked upon as being above him in social stature. And she felt that way herself. So much so that they, after they were married and they had moved into his castle, he transferred ownership to her. It became known as the Castis. Castle? I'm sure I just butchered the it's, hell out of that. It's Cachetis. Cachetis. Thank you. Cachetis okay. Castle. I wasn't, I wasn't that far off, but I wasn't good. That uh, was his gift to her for their wedding. It was the castles had actually come from his mother to him. And his gift to Elizabeth for their, their wedding was, was the beautiful castle. And he took her name. So not only did she keep her last name, name of Bathory, Ferrance became Ferrance Bathory as well. Well, I think in the scheme of power, he probably made that decision, you know, and was a smart move. It's a political decision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So while Ferrance was away at war against the Ottoman Empire, she used her inherent independence to really seek control and take over. She managed the estate uh, and ultimately she managed the populace in Hungary. She oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the work of the Hungarian people, including managing the health care of the time. Exactly. And that's where I think that she did have some interest in medical pursuits and had curiosity. And because she 
she was educated and she spoke multiple languages and she read, which was also uncommon in the time. Most of the time, if you were, um, you know, wealthy and back in that time, you would actually just speak to your servants and they would transcribe it for you. So most of the royalty didn't actually know how to read and write. And it wasn't just in her particular area of Hungary either. Franz went to Vienna to study they had properties all the way leading towards Austria, leading towards Vienna. So that large swath of land was an incredibly populous and politically str- political stronghold. She was responsible for a lot of people. She was essentially charged with maintaining the entire geopolitical landscape. Yeah, and the lands. And it's really about that, how that covered a very large portion of Central Europe at the time. What we consider Hungary today is a much smaller portion of what what, what this actually was. And the Bathory family, and in particular Nadazdi and Elizabeth, they owned a third of the land. A third. And then the king owned a portion of this. I'm assuming likely some portion of the other two thirds, but I don't think he owned a full third and it may have been smaller. So she was quite powerful. I'm assuming the church owned a large portion of the lands as well. Um, In 1578, Nadazi became the chief commander of the Hungarian troops, leading them to war against the Ottomans. So this meant that Ferranz was um, off at war, um, you know, on the front lines, apparently a very strong commander. He was well known for his torture in the field as well. He would do pretty horrific things to his, um, you know, his, I guess, not his allies, but his enemies. And what I find interesting about this is that a lot of the things that he was doing on the field were things that he had taught Elizabeth and got her interested in. So they became the norm, but also things that others were doing off of the field and could be construed as sort of inappropriate when they're not in in the time of war. I do find it interesting that it's acceptable when there are any kind of acts of war and any kind of just torture like this. But it's so strange that I guess all is fair in love and war really is the ultimate saying, but more so war than anything because we're so willing to dismiss it. There's this there's this interesting information out there that Elizabeth, during the war, was when she was charged with defending the Chastis, Chastis, again, Cachetis, Cachetis, Cachetis. When she was charged with defending Cachetis, Cachetis, uh, which was right on the border of Royal Hungary and the Ottoman-controlled area of Hungary, where Ferrance was off fighting the war. The really fascinating thing that seems completely contradictory to what she would do very shortly thereafter, she would actually defend the victims' wives of the uh, deceased Ottoman soldiers from being tortured and raped by Hungarians. She, she almost took it upon herself to be their protector because she looked at them as innocent and not part of war. Uh, they should not have been included in the war. They were innocent bystanders who now became victims because they were susceptible and there was no one there to defend them. And she felt it was her place to step up and stop those wrongs from happening. That's what's really interesting about her is that she... 
she was, you know, a religious person. She did step in. She and she she intervened frequently on the behalf of destitute women. She, um, you know, was an advocate for women frequently, especially when it came to them being overpowered and raped and protecting them. And so that's why it's so strange that the flip side is her. The conversation is, you know, on a daily basis, torturing, you know, virgins in the basement or in her dungeon at the same time. It just seems really strange that she'd be doing both. It's almost contradictory to each other. It's completely contradictory. They don't make any sense. They don't. There's no overlap there. And so I do question if her history of seizures may have deteriorated her brain later on in life and led her to this because it does go from one complete extreme realm of being this good Christian holy woman protecting those who need protecting the underprivileged and the vulnerable to completely to, to total violence and taking advantage of those same type of people. That's what's really contradictory about it in, in my head is how does she walk around in the day operating in this way and at, at night she's supposed to be sneaking in the dungeon and torturing these people. She It didn't happen overnight. It certainly didn't start. She had been doing it the whole time and how much and what she was actually doing could that be construed as torture or is she just taking advantage of the opportunity of the time and her power? So let's talk a little bit about the Nadazdi children, the Bathory Nadazdi children. Um, there were a number of them. Again, we talked about Elizabeth early on in her life, getting pregnant, the baby being taken away. I find that baby being taken away and raised somewhere else and then possibly running around the countryside and maybe knowing Elizabeth later in her life because, I, I don't know, my fantasy is that she tried to get back to the castle because she was a daughter of nobility and, you know, possibly could have been killed by her own mother if she was tortured as a virgin. And she doesn't come up later either. No, she's never. never referenced again. No. So let's talk about uh, their children, their lovely children. So we know about the first child, the girl. Then it took a number of years for mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth and Ferrans to actually get pregnant and have any children. Anna Nadazi was born in 1585. She later became the wife of Nikolai Vlizhzrinsky. Also, we have born in 1590, Nikolai the Sixth. Nikolai Zinsky. Oh, oh, Nikolai Zinsky. <laughs> All right, I'll say that over. Brittany, cut that. I don't want to cut that. That was great. <laughs> Her daughter, Anna Nadazi, was born in 1585 and was later to become the wife of Nikolai VI Zavrinsky. There you go. <laughs> I question that because that should be at the very end. That should be after his last name, darn it. Uh, but he was the sixth Nikola. Oh, whatever. Isn't the, like, the, you know, so-and-so the six at the end? I don't know, but... I'm going to say, I like V better. Uh, That was a really popular show back in my day. Uh, Next we have on the list of children who were born was Ursula Orsica Nadazi, born in 1590, and we don't know when um, she died, but she would later become the wife of... Istvan the second Benio. Uh, Istvan E Benio? I like E. Or <laughs> two L's. Ill. Lol. <laughs> Who knows? Next we have on the list uh Catalin or Keta or Katarina Nadazdi, who was born in 1594. Don't know when she died as well. And then we have Andras Nadazdi, 1596 to 1603. So he was a young one. He only lived to be six or seven, unfortunately. And then we have Paul. Paul was essentially going to be the rightful heir of the Nadazdi fortune after Elizabeth, um, who 
realized early on that things were going south and she started taking measures to make sure that her her wealth was protected for her children and she to put some things in play to make sure that Paul would be that rightful heir and then Paul's responsibility was to protect all of the other children so at the time Paul was fairly young and the daughters were actually born to again Nikolai and whatever this guy's name is Nikolai and Istvan sound like a great party party couple, um, but they uh, these were grown men. You know, they they actually late, a little later on during the investigation with Elizabeth conspired with Thurzo 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 Thurzo. I keep think, wanting to say Thumbo conspired with Thurzo about her fortune and the politics behind um, acquiring or making sure that they are still taken care of within the realm of how her wealth will be distributed. There was definitely early on, or at least after Ferrans died, there was some real focus on her and how to overpower her and dethrone her per se, because they wanted to get to her wealth. There were a lot of motivations behind that. And she was a, a woman who had no husband. She had her children. Most of her children were young, except for the daughters who were married off. And while she probably had a good relationship with the, the son-in-laws, they had motivation too, because at at that point, she was telling them that Paul was going to be the royal heir and Paul would have to take care of them. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. You've already given us things. Are you saying that we're not going to be able to have the things that you promised? They were very upset about that. So later we'll talk a little bit about how they conspire with Thurzo to help um, bring the investigations to a head and take her out of um control. So there were a couple of other children that it's expected that Elizabeth actually gave birth to and that died either within childbirth or right thereafter. There is also the possibility of Miklos Nadazdi as a name for mm-hmm. one of her children being born. And then Georgie Nadazdi. Georgie. Georgie. I'm calling him Georgie. <laughs> Georgie. Georgie um, from It. Yes, I am. I'm calling him Georgie. I saw this really interesting. Oh, God, what was it? Uh, the Countess, I don't know, the Blood Countess, something, uh, it was a prime movie. Um, it was made by this cooperation between the Slovakian and... Oh, I saw, I didn't watch that movie. I wanted to watch that movie. It was really interesting because they had, uh, I'm going to digress here because I, I think that what's more interesting about what actually happened with Elizabeth, because we may never know, is all of the surrounding information and how it's glamorized. In the movie, they have her, it's, I'll make sure to to give proper, you know, source to this later later on on our site. But they had her she some somehow they had had her conspiring with Caravaggio and having a relationship with him, the painter, hmm. and drug him That's around. Interesting. <laughs> it's really weird. What? Had him drug him all around. He was her slave, but da da. Um and he and she at one point said, Caravaggio, come downstairs. I want you to paint a picture because he painted a couple of pictures of her evidently or so in this biopic. So she brings him down to the basement. She pulls out this chunk of ice with this frozen baby in it. And she's like, I want you to paint him so that you can carry on, you know, because I mean, Caravaggio, I don't have, I don't think that Caravaggio and Elizabeth met at all, but the idea that he painted pictures of her family and the idea that she would want him to paint a picture of this child frozen in a block of ice, um, which is impossible because how would it even stay frozen? And he's painting this child in front of, you know, um, the ice and he's got candles. And I'm like, first off, the ice is going to melt with the candles. Like, come on. Um, but it was really, it was, it was a stretch. But I thought it was really interesting that she had this solid block of ice with this baby in it. And I'm like, 
like, oh my God. And that's how I, that was what was interesting to me is, you know, with these infants, you know, what exactly happened to them? You know, I'm, I'm assuming they were buried in some cemetery. She probably owned all the cemeteries, but um, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, it looked like there were crypts. Take a look at the pictures of the, um, the castle Cachetis online, that cat, that castle's still standing and mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a big pile of stone. Like I really mm-hmm. think of Game of Thrones when I think of this whole scenario, you know, it was brutal. It was bloody. If you think about the context of, well, Brittany, you don't watch Game of Thrones. I but don't, if you but did, I'm, I'm reciting the song in my head right now. Yeah. If you did. Yes. It's very dramatic. Very, you know, horses, all of this. Yeah. But we're also, I mean, we're talking 14th to 15th century here. So yeah, that's. That's the sign of the times. That's what it was. Absolutely. It, it was stone. Oh, and frequently people would die in childbirth. So uh, to, yes. for her to make it through all of these these births. And, you Up know, to seven? Yes. Yeah, that's a lot. That's pretty significant. I mean, that's a lot even in modern day medicine. Absolutely. It takes its toll on a female body. It does. It does. And we'll talk a little later because it was definitely um, even discussed that Elizabeth was one of the reasons that she may, her motive for, for torturing these young girls was to use their blood as some kind of anti-aging treatment to keep her young and to keep her immortal. I don't necessarily think that's the furthest stretch, to be honest with you. And I don't know, are are we about ready to get into all of the accusations against her? Yeah, I think this is where we can say this is where every everything that's significant that we've heard of and that she was tried for, per se, this is where it starts. And it starts with the death of her husband, Franz. So he dies on January 4th, 1604, and he is 48. When he died, it was a real challenge for her. She, um, this, this turned things for her. She, I think she started to, um, have some real issues. Trauma may have affected her in ways that others may have not been affected because of her issues with the inbreeding and the epilepsy. I think this may have drove, driven her to a place others might not necessarily have had to go. All right. So as we mentioned at the beginning, this is, uh, Trigger warnings, and I'm going to read uh, verbatim what I read from rejectedprincesses.com, which I thought was a fantastic source, and I loved it. And directly what they said is, all the trigger warnings, everything. Now's the time to turn off, unless you're our friends and family, in which case you don't have that choice. You have to keep listening. But if you are don't want to hear about violence, gore, rape, incest, this is the time to turn down the volume <clears throat> because I'm about to read a litany of them. And, and, go ahead. And just a reminder to everyone, you know, these are a lot of this information we we found in a variety of sources. A lot of it's historical information. We can't speak to its accuracy. No. I think that there I'm not even sure if anyone Anyone could know if it's accurate. There's so much information. And again, when you think about motivations, a lot of this but could have been contrived for the use of those motivations. So to be fair, uh, take it with a grain of salt and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what we know or what was documented fairly well. As Sonia mentioned, the initial instance of her experience was getting a little blood on her skin and she thought that it helped the aging process. Now, it's suggested that she slapped one of her servants, and upon doing so, their blood landed on her face, and when she wiped it off, she thought that it looked healed. It may have helped get rid of some wrinkles. A vanity play. Now, that seems pretty far-fetched, but we do live in a day and age where people go through 
cosmetic procedures of having small needles to increase the blood flow to their face. Uh, leeches are used. It's kind of gross. But I don't think it's that far-fetched. No, and if you also think about the methods that they would have had to even, you know, I mean, makeup, I mean, was mostly just white powder and some kind of cream, I'm sure. Um, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised if the blood provided some kind of um, sort of flush or a glow, per se, that made her pale skin look, you know, almost like a rouge. So I wouldn't be surprised there. I also kind of contribute some of this to or attribute some of this to the conversation earlier about the epilepsy and mm-hmm. unknown treatment right. that time would have been to utilize blood for that so even if this there was no correlation to her treating herself for epilepsy the use of blood was fairly common and not surprising so for her to think about other ways to use it not surprising as well so elizabeth's victims were serving girls between the age of 10 and 14 the daughters of most local peasants at that time she would essentially recruit the peasant class to find these young women. And it was really considered a great honor for these young women to come and work for the batteries. It was a step up. It was an opportunity to get out of their lower class system. So many families and these young girls did so willingly. And the families gave of these girls without any concern because it was a chance for a better life for them. And they were hopeful that this would mean they would have better, more opportunities than the parents had in their upbringing. Exactly. And, you know, again, she was the, a, a very well thought of, you know, very wealthy woman. You know, how can you not trust a person like that? So not surprising. All right. So a lot of these are take it all with a grain of salt because it's based on the surviving testimonials of her servants and confidants. And a lot of these came after abuse and torture by the accusers. Most of it. So remember back in the day when anyone was being interviewed, they were probably being interviewed by the court and or the church. And it was common that they would be tortured to get the interviews and to get the information they needed from whoever they were interviewing. So this is not surprising that they tortured someone into saying whatever they needed them to say just so that they wouldn't be tortured anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if probably only a quarter of this is actually has any, any basis of fact and probably taken out of context. All right. So I'm going to run down some of the accusations and there's they're quite violent. Starting with, she kept her servants chained up every night so tight that their hands turned blue and they spurted blood. She beat them to the point where there's so much blood on the walls and beds that they had to use ashes and cinders to soak it up. She beat a servant in Vienna, so this wasn't stuck just in Hungary. This was Austria, or I guess it would be Austria-Hungary at the time. Uh, So loudly that her neighbors started banging pots on the walls because the uh, violence and the screaming was so loud. She strangled a servant to death with a scarf. She This one, I think, is the actual worst. It's disturbing. She burned her servants with metal sticks, red hot keys, and coins, ironed the soles of their feet, and stuck burning iron rods into their vaginas. Yeah, she definitely had um, 
she had a strange hatred of women and, and she really, and I don't know if that was because she, again, maybe have caught Ferrand's, um, with other women, but she, her relationship with, with women just wasn't as close as her relationship with men. She, she sort of idolized men and this whole idea that all the things that they, all the possibilities that they had at their fingertips. And she was envious because they had those possibilities that she didn't have. So there were definitely many accounts of her, um, mutilating genitalia, um, you know, I mean, gruesomely, some with her teeth. Yes. Apparently that she, you know, there were some conversations about her being into cannibalism and a lot of the biting of the flesh and the biting of the, the genitals and, and really mutilating people was done with her actual mouth. There's a lot of psychosexual physicality involved here that I think is, there's a lot to uncover there. And I wish there would be more to research because I think that's what's most fascinating. Because exactly to your point, she would cut her servants with knives, scissors, and then bite their breasts and genitals on her own to suck their blood and eat their flesh. She used needles and knives and candles uh, to burn the victims. Uh, she made, stitched, this is also terrible, I can't even imagine this, stitched uh, servants' lips and tongues together so they couldn't speak or they couldn't scream. <laughs> uh, it's not funny but my not, god but that's all actually if you watch the the episode of lore on amazon prime mm -hmm. there's a, an image of that and a scene of that happening and it's so disturbing because this poor woman wants to scream so badly and she's terrified and she's crying but she can't because her mouth is shown shut sewn shut uh, she made servants sing, sit on stinging nettles and then bathe next to the uh, bathe with the nettles. While they were bathing, she would further push them into the servants' buttocks and breasts. Uh, she sta had servants stand in tubs of ice water and then stand outside and freeze to death. Forced them to cook and eat their own flesh. Covered them in honey and laid them outside and strapped them down so mice and ants and bugs would eat them to death. This one I think is kind of fascinating. Baked a magical poisonous cake to kill a rival magistrate. See, that falls outside of the torture. It does, but I think that, that's kind of interesting. It is, because as I, I actually, that's the first time I heard that she actually used poison, because that was, I had not heard that that was on any list. And I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't use it, at least in the context of torturing servants, because that would have been far too nice of her. She <laughs> wanted to see them in pain. She wanted to see what happened. I think this goes back to the curiosity of Elizabeth Bathory and what she, and her interest in medical and her interest in, in, in anatomy and just the arts, black arts, as you may call them, witchcraft, all of it. You know, she had all opportunities. She could test, test the world in its fullest. So I think she took advantage of that and she, an opportunity was certainly there. And it, you know, it all goes back to when we're tiny little kids, what would happen if we did this, you know, and we did that and then it happened. I think this is her taking it to the extreme and the torture of these people. Well, and I think actually to your point of wanting to see what happened, and so poison was another opportunity to experiment and see the bodily results of using poison in a cake. Well, I think in this situation, you're talking about um, the actually poisoning a magistrate. So that would That's have followed. True. That would have followed. Yes. Yeah, she wouldn't have been there to enjoy the fruits of her labor. That's a good point. I think that was a tactic just to get 
that person out of the way because again I, there were a lot of people trying to overpower her and um and conquer her so that was just i think that was a political move to take someone out of the way so a couple more things it's rumored that she would stuff servants under her bed and feed on them later after they were dead and you had mentioned before also <laughs> so gross. i know it's awful it's what? terrifying right but then also you mentioned wondering about where the children or where people were buried many were buried on the land some were in marked graves most were shallow graves unmarked and it was just a way to get rid of the bodies and no one would come on the land anyway they weren't allowed to because she owned everything yeah and that's that's something we should definitely talk about there was an issue at the, at the beginning of her torture career she definitely had issues getting rid of bodies she would frequently call the priest over to actually bury the body and take the body but she would have already had them sealed in a coffin and she would say that they died from cholera and she didn't want that to be spread she didn't want uh, others to get infected and she did that a number of times and to the point where the the priests were tired of it they finally raised their hands and said you know we can no longer accept this so i'm sure she found other ways to get rid of these bodies if you're talking about 650 bodies that's a lot of people my guess is there were probably more than that because when you're talking about a person who has full control over others you could kill 100 people in one fail swoop and it wouldn't make a difference nobody's going to do anything about it because she technically owned them and apparently at the time the only way that you could get tried for something of this nature was that if someone at your same level actually witnessed it with it. And then the likelihood of someone at your level witnessing any of this or her level witnessing this because of her high rank would have been near impossible. The only person who actually witnessed any of it at her level would have been her husband and he passed away. So a couple of the scenarios built in as to what drove her to this. We mentioned that she had a history of epilepsy, which, of course, does a number on the brain if untreated, especially for Elizabeth's 40 plus years on this earth. It could certainly have driven her to do some things. Uh, she had multiple sexual relationships, including one later in life with a guy named Ironhead Steve, which is a great name. His uh, name is not Ironhead uh, Steve. Apparently that's what it's called. Was anybody named Steve? What? Yes. That's crazy. Uh, that sounds like something out of like Days and Confused, like the guy at the 7-Eleven. I'm not going to argue with it. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, so there's a rumor that she was actually syphilitic, and we know syphilis untreated uh, can attack the brain. Uh, there's also a question on whether she was raped when she was young. We know she had a child when she was very young. Whether that was out of a consensual relationship or rape, that's unknown. But there are various things that are leading to potentially what drove her to do this and the most ridiculous one is she was menopausal so that was just a natural progression yeah but she killed people and tortured people i know, way earlier I know. Than that. But that's just what people were using to justify it Ugh. let's just say m make sure to remember that elizabeth did not do all of this by herself she had a lot of people working with her and for her she would send people out to find people and at the end of the day when they finally started doing the um investigation thurzo who was by the way, supposed to be the guy who was protecting her yes. after her husband left. So Thurzo and his widow. Shorhi. What? Yes. Whatever. What? His name's your. His name's Yorhi. Yeah. His name <laughs> and her de deceased uh, ta or, uh, infant. They're both named Shorhi. Well, did you also know that I think his wife was named Yorhi? Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so Yorhi Thurzo, who was supposed to protect the family. 
actually, rumors were starting to spread about the violence happening around the castle. So, as we also mentioned at the very beginning, she was a devout Protestant, and this was a becoming a strong Catholic, a, a Catholic stronghold in the with the royalty. So, Jorge Thurzo was tasked by the Catholic King of Hungary at the time to start an investigation into the events at the Bathory compound. And remember, this was the same king who owed Elizabeth money. So, you know, let's not forget opportunity here for the king to somehow get out from under this burden of debt and also to capture all of her property and her wealth and bring it into his kingdom. And he, then for him, him to facilitate it in the way that he felt, you know, should be deserved. Honestly, it was probably him splitting it up somehow with Thurzo, maybe the church, whatever it was. But they were really trying to, you know, undermine her and take away her wealth. So let's go back. Uh, let's take a moment and go back into the actual day that Thurzo came in and actually um, potentially took Elizabeth under arrest, which was right after Christmas. I think it was December 30th. Bustin. Again, we know that Elizabeth could not have been found or not have been charged with anything unless someone at her stature had actually witnessed this. And it was told, said that Thurzo actually, when he entered the house, she was arrested in the act of some of these, some of this torturous event. She had four different folks who actually supported her efforts. All of them servants, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to butcher their names. <laughs> uh, the first is Doratya Semtezi, Iana Yo, Katerina Banika, and Janos Yovari, which was also known as Fico. So she would send, and, and all these people were very close to her. They were people who were, um, you know, indebted to her and actually looked up to her. She was their uh, countess. She was the person that they looked up to. So honestly, even if she said that they could leave and go on their merry way and not be her servants anymore, they probably wouldn't have left. There wasn't really much of a trial. They tried to convince the uh, local governments to try Elizabeth Bathory after Hjorki turned on her. The king pushed very hard for a trial against Elizabeth but it was determined that it would not look good to have such a, a woman of such high nobility on trial. She also had a school, which she referred to as, which I think is a great name, Gynecum. Uh, don't, don't ask me. Which was essentially a finishing school for young girls, which may or may not been a feeder for her torture. So it, she was still highly respected, even among all of this. So all of the accomplices that Sonia just mentioned went on to trial, but Elizabeth Bathory was saved from that embarrassment. Yep. So starting with the trial, like Brittany said, not much of a trial. What was also interesting, I thought, was that Elizabeth's son-in-laws, married to her daughters, of course, were upset because Elizabeth had decided that Paul would be the rightful heir and he would essentially take care of the rest of them, but the son-in-laws and the daughters wouldn't wouldn't really get any anything, any of the wealth. And they did not like that. So actually Thurzo spoke to those two guys, those two folks, I'm not going to butcher their names again, but we've already discussed them, as well as Paul, and they came up with this plan on how that this would go down to keep Elizabeth protected to maintain control of the property and to make sure that it was distributed in a way that everyone would agree. 
So during the trial, uh, dozens of witnesses and survivors, sometimes up to 35 a day, testified. There were actually two trials. The first was held on January 2nd, 1611. The second on January 7th, 1611. So as you can tell, not much time in between. It was They were very fast trials. It was pretty much an open and shut case. And it was only trials for her accomplices since so much effort had gone into protecting her. And, um, you know, of course, they were found guilty because they're servants, so they don't matter. <laughs> and uh, they were put to death. Uh, I think Fico was beheaded. And then the three women who were her accomplices were um, burned at the stake. The three women actually got it worse, you might say, because they were burned at the stake and dismembered while still alive. Fico was beheaded and then burned after his death. So his death was quick and painless while the women really suffered. So crazy. I know. Um, all right. So here we are at the end of our, uh, of our conversation about Elizabeth. No, we know that, of course, everyone would agree that Elizabeth was guilty of something. The whys, the exact details of what she was guilty of, I don't know if we'll ever know. I think a lot of it, again, was contrived um, to create, you know, based on the motive of the people who would benefit from her death. She was imprisoned in her own house for four years. She did die at the end of that imprisonment. I think she was in her 50s, if I'm not mistaken, when she passed away. And they essentially walled her into a room in her castle at Ketchatis, and um, she died there. They would essentially create a one, one hole big enough for them to slide food through, and that's how they communicated with her. She spent a lot of her time writing letters and communicating with people as much as she could, but ultimately people stopped coming to visit her. She wrote uh, 32 letters that are still available in uh, the Hungarian state archives. After her death, it was reported that someone found a list of the names of everyone that she murdered, which is where the 650 come from. But she was ultimately convicted, more or less, even though she never went to trial, of the murder of 80 women. And it's generally accepted that the minimum is around 30 to 35. And that seems to be the number floated around as her legacy of the total number of murders. But as we said at the beginning, uh, she is in the Guinness Book of World Records. And they don't mess around for 650 total murders. Yep. Over a 30 year time, 50 a year, one a week. You know, if you break it down based on what was happening at that time, I, that's actually not very surprising. What part she played in those murders, who knows? I also think that a lot of her medical curiosity was utilized at this time. I think that there's a possibility that some of these people, while they may have been tortured when they were alive, I think there was some uh, anatomical reasons for her studies after they were also deceased. I think she essentially studied the body after death. Um, she was very interested in that. And because she had medical pursuits of her own, as, as weak as they were at the time, because they weren't very advanced, I think she still had an interest in it. I don't know if they ever found, I, I understood that the only, the only thing they could tie to the 650 names was one servant who said that a <laughs> list existed, but they never found the list. Never found the list. No, I think that's how we're going to wrap up our podcast, our episode on Elizabeth Bathory. Of course, we have a few shout outs to give before we go. Uh, first and foremost, want to give credit to our sources before uh, we wrap this up. For me personally, I already mentioned uh, Rejected Princesses, which I thought was an awesome website. Of course, 
the ever trusty Wikipedia. I mentioned the episode of Lore on Amazon Prime, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, History.com, HowStuffWorks.com, all great resources. And then uh, an episode of uh, about Elizabeth Bathory from fellow podcasters, The History Chicks. Who I love as well. I uh, I have a list of my own. Again, Wikipedia for sure. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of content out there. Like I said, biopics, documentaries. Uh, a lot of them have a lot of information. Some may be true. Some may not be true. How will we know the difference? But there's a lot of good research out there. A couple of podcasts that I listened to that I really enjoyed about the subject were also Generation Y, Serial Killers, Crime Junkies, and History Chicks. Other podcasts that I really enjoy that I want to give a shout out to is definitely audacity to podcast criminal serial and the lad pot last podcast on the left which i love um those guys are, are great i would su- highly suggest listening to them if you get a chance they're very fun and my inspiration my favorite murder love you ladies i know you love those guys all, all right, right. Want to give a shout out to our friend John McGrew, who provided the music for our podcast. Another shout out to Juan Mezzalione for our logo design. All right. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time. Later, Scarlettos. Thanks, Scarlettos.